Ephesians chapter 1. Can I just read it? I just, I just want to read this passage to you again. We are, we're in our second part of this message, and it's a run-on sentence, and I'm going to read you the whole thing. In the Greek, there are no periods here. It's just one sentence. So here we go. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and that would include you because this is divinely written for you. The faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as who chose? He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Christ to who himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise here's the goal to the praise of the glory of his grace what about that grace Paul it's a grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved the beloved is Jesus now that's where we were Let me tell you where we're going. We've looked at the work of the Father. Now let's deal with what the Son has to do with our salvation. Last time I told you that the the focus of this entire book, and it's where Paul started, was to put the emphasis on God, that God has done the work. It's Him. It's to Him, from Him, through Him, for Him. It's all about Him. The Father has been unpacking this eternal plan that includes our redemption. But you got to know that, that God the Father wasn't sitting up in heaven one day during all of our time and space history and wringing his hands and saying, what am I going to do with these humans? He's always known what he's going to do with us. In fact, He has marked out ahead. He has predestined this whole thing. He has chosen us. We didn't come up with the bright idea of God. God knew us before we knew ourselves. And he knew our state. He knew our sinfulness. He knew how this whole thing was going to go. Jesus, here's here's an easy way to say it. Jesus wasn't just an afterthought in the mind of God. To help fix something that went horribly wrong. Jesus has always been the plan. And we have always, always, from Genesis to where we are today in history, have been knee deep in the grace of God. And it's always been there. It's always been there. If you've been here a while, you've heard me teach passages in the Old Testament that are passages of the cross. I mean, we see the cross of Jesus everywhere in the Old Testament. They're what we call types or foreshadows. It's God yelling out to humanity, hey, listen, the answer is coming. And here's what it's going to look like. Here's what it's going to look like. He chose us. He, He worked all this out. He figured all this out. He's divinely inspired this plan all the way from eternity past. Now, there's some, there, there's, some, there's some words that you could apply to this. Sovereignty, eternal grace, predestination, election, and we don't like some of these words. Paul used these words. 
Let me give you, at least before we move on to the work that Jesus has done, let me give you, let me give you four reasons why you need to embrace the grace of our God from eternity past. Number one, the sovereignty of God in bestowing his grace upon us eliminates all boasting from you and I. He's going to specifically deal with this in Ephesians 2, so I'm not going to go into that message. We'll get to that message. But here's a great thing that this doctrine does. It takes you and I out of the equation, and we can't brag upon what we've done to aid ourselves in the salvation of God, as if we helped God save us. We didn't. He chose us. He saved us. And so there's... There's a great comfort in knowing that uh, there is no boasting right here. I have nothing to brag about. You have nothing to brag about over that guy or over that lady or over that one or this one or this one in this estate or that one in that estate. Such were all of us at one point in time. Amen? But for the grace of God. That's what that, that's what that little thing we throw around means. It's the sovereign grace of God that we look to. Not me helping God do some magical thing, cooperating with God. No, I had no capability to cooperate with the God I'd rebelled against. I stiff-armed God, and so did you. And so there's nothing for me to boast about, except in the grace of God, His love towards me. Second thing that it does is it is a great assurance of our salvation. Just knowing, think about it, just very practically knowing that this is a work of God and not me and God doing it. If I have something to do with it, guess what? Tomorrow, I'm going to drop the ball. Tomorrow, I'm going to fail. Tomorrow, I'm going to mess it up. Tomorrow, I'm not going to fulfill my end of the duty. I don't know about you, but I I miss days. I, I, I take days off, seemingly, in the Spirit. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Our, our hymn says. The great assurance is that God saved you. He will keep you. You're not a part of that. You had, no, you had no part in gaining it, so you'll have no part in losing it. It's a work of God. Isn't that good? I, that's good news to me. Sovereign grace brings great assurance to the believer. Uh, another place where this is seen, not as clearly as Ephesians 1 and 2, mind you, but in Romans 8, 9, and 10, you know what comes at the very end of that? It, it, it comes not just to teach a doctrine, but to give great comfort to the saints. Anytime you see the doctrine of God's grace, sovereignty in Scripture, it's always intended to teach comfort to the body. It's, it's one of these teachings that comes at the end of have no fear, church. Why? God is in, is in the heavens. God is on his throne. Uh, the third reason, it leads to holiness. Did you see in verse 4? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, not just so that we get a get-out-of-jail-free card, not just so that our payment of sin is met, not just so the debt of our sin is paid, But he does this. He chooses us that we would be in eternity future, standing before him, holy and blameless. And as a fruit of what God has done, we are growing in righteousness. We are growing in our holiness. And that's how we know we are in him. And so we don't just get our debt paid and we just do whatever we want. 
the evidence, the fruit of God saving us is that he grows us in grace. Fourth reason, uh, and this one may really sound strange to you, but the, the doctrine of God's sovereignty encourages evangelism. It actually encourages evangelism. Some of you say, well, well, if God is in ultimate control and he's the one who chooses and he's predestined, and he's the one doing this, and I'm not cooperating with him to do it, and it's not a me and God sort of thing working together. If it's just God and he's choosing who he's choosing, he's going to do it. I mean, doesn't, isn't he, why, does, why does he need me? <laughs> What's evangelism for? Uh, this could take its own sermon, but let me give you this because here's where the comfort comes from. Here's where, the, here's where the grace comes in. Um, God not only determines the ends to salvation, but he, he's chosen the means. You are part of the means of God working out this eternal plan. Do you know that? But you know, what, you know what's extremely comforting to me? Uh, is that the weight of your salvation is not wholly, completely, or maybe I should say primarily upon my shoulders. Do I have a responsibility as part of the means? I sure do. Has God called me to be a role in that? I I sure am. But God takes the responsibility for your salvation fully and completely on his shoulders. And let me tell you what that does for me. I got saved in the 11th grade, and I I was, like many of you, uh, at the time, I was like, I just don't want to tell people about this. And, you know, I want to tell people what God has done for me. And so I'd go, and I'd talk to somebody, you know, another high schooler, another bonehead football player, and I'd start to tell them about, listen to this Jesus Listen to God. And they look at me like I had three heads. And I, I'd walk away and I'd scratch my head like many of you do. And I'd think, I am the worst evangelist in the whole wide world. Maybe, maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe, maybe I'm not saying it right. Maybe I don't have the formula right. Maybe, maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe this, maybe that. Uh, and then, you know, at some point I just decided, well, maybe I don't have enough of the answers. Maybe they're going to ask me this question and I won't be able to answer it. And you see all the burden that gets heaped upon you, me, as we take the responsibility of that miracle into our own hands, that miracle that only God can do in, in the heart of man, we take it into our own hands. You know what happens is, man, I don't want any part of that evangelism thing. You're telling me that if I'm not a good enough salesman, that guy goes to hell? I'll just assume not be involved in that. Thank you very much. And you know what we say? My gift is not evangelism. My gift is discipleship. And so you get them saved over there, brother, pastor, whoever you are, and bring them to me, and I'll teach them, and I'll tell them the word, etc. Part of the reason for that is because we don't want any part of that. If I carry the weight of the burden of your eternal state, wholly and completely, primarily, that's not the kind of salesman I, I want to have to be. And if you do try that, you know what you, know what you end up doing? You, you become a real slick salesman. And you'll spin it whatever way you need to spin it to try and talk that guy in, to try and twist his arm or drag him into God's grace. And, and that's not how it works. You know how it works? Uh, scripture uses this type of analogy, is that we till ground like a farmer. We plant seeds. We water. We fertilize. We bring light with our life, hopefully. But you know what happens down there in the dirt, in the dark? No, you don't. answer is you don't. Why? Because God is the one who is at work in the dirt, in the dark. He's the one that does the miracle right there. Now, obviously, let me put it another way. I've had something to do with my son being here and my, my uh, 
both my sons being here, and my wife had something to do with both my sons being here. You, you tracking with me, right? Um, we played a part in that. Um, but for me to take credit for what, what happened there magically in the womb, that's ridiculous, isn't it? I had nothing to do with that. She had nothing to do with that. I mean, we play our part, but God does the miracle of childbirth, doesn't he? Can I tell you that he also takes upon himself the miracle of rebirth? All right, so that's just four reasons why. Don't quickly dismiss the wealth of comfort that is in those opening verses. The sovereign grace of God, it sometimes feels like this black hole that we can't really climb out of. But can I tell you, if, if taken in the context of Scripture, the intent of Scripture is to bring you great comfort. All right. Now, what part does Jesus play? That's the part that the Father has played, eternity past. The Father set into motion this plan. He marked it out. He chooses, etc. But in time and space, we needed Jesus. The next verse. In Him. In Him who? Verse 7. Well, the end of verse 6 says that He bestowed freely grace upon us, not just because of us. He did it via something else. He did it via someone else. We got grace, not because we were all great and smart and powerful and we figured God out and we cooperated with God. We got grace in the beloved. Who's the beloved? It's the beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. We better be found in him. He's the one God is pleased with. He's the one the father is pleased with. The grace has been freely bestowed upon you, verse 6, in the beloved. And now Paul goes on to say, let me tell you about that, that beloved one. Here's what he did for you so that the grace could be applied to your life. Verse 7, in him, in Christ, the beloved, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And I just soak this in. According to the riches of his grace, not just out of the riches of his grace. It's like having $100 in your pocket and tipping somebody out of your wealth. But he gave according to, like it's, a, it's, it's the idea of giving in parallel to or in equal to. God lavishes upon us. That's how he works in his grace. He floods us with grace. That's why I call this knee deep in grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he, and he's just going to be redundant here. He's just going to keep piling on here about this grace. Which he, verse 8, lavished on us. And that just means that he just dumps it out like a, like a dump truck. And it just, it just covers us. God's not, God's not stingy with his grace when he pours it on us. He overwhelms us in the beloved. Nine. In Christ, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention. Let me just, let me just stop because we, we're a little bit behind. And where I want to focus today, and we'll pick back up next week, is, is in this word redemption in verse 7. If you want to know what Jesus' part in this whole eternal plan of God is, it is found in the word redemption. In the beloved, we have redemption. Now, this word redemption, let me, let me unpack this for you because it, it has a connotation in Paul's mind that maybe we don't fully grasp. When I think redeem, I think of that, you know, that 10 cent that I can get back on that glass bottle. We don't use those anymore, so you can't do that really anymore. 
Uh, that's what I think of redemption. But redemption is so much more than that. Can I tell you what came to Paul's mind and the readers in Paul's day? What came to their mind when you think about redemption? Redemption was a word of commerce. Okay? It's a word of commerce. Buying and selling. And the predominant avenue of commerce in these ancient days was slavery. And so the word redemption came to carry with it very heavily this idea of of buying and selling, this commerce in humanity. In the beloved, we have this redemption. What does that mean? Probably the best story to explain in all of Scripture what Christ's work of redemption is in our life is in the Old Testament. Remember what I told you? It's not a new thing for God. He didn't just figure it out and then say, let's, let's make a new plan. We'll call it the New Testament and we'll send Jesus and he'll do all this thing. No, can I tell you, he's been trying to point it out forever and ever and ever and ever. Some of you know the story of Hosea. If you don't know Hosea, go back and read it. And uh, you remember last week I told you that uh, I didn't feel good about preaching this message in front of our kids when our kids were in here the last Sunday of the month last week. This is part of the reason why. The story of Hosea, right? Uh, I'll let you unpack that for your kids. But here's what, here's what he tells Hosea. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. God to Hosea. Hosea, here's what I want you to do. Find a wife of whoredom and have kids of whoredom in a land rampant with whoredom. How about that calling? Anybody want that calling from God, guys? Probably not. And Hosea buys into it. He says, okay. That's amazing. And so Hosea goes and he finds a wife. Her name's Gomer. I won't won't say anything about Gomer. I'm just saying. And Gomer fits the bill. She's everything God has called Hosea to. Marry an unfaithful woman. Marry Marry an adulterous woman. Why? God, why do that? Because my people are an adulterous people. Hosea. My people are an adulterous, idolatrous people. They flirt with other gods and they commit spiritual adultery and think nothing of it. Hosea, your life is going to be a living drama of that relationship. Okay. Their unfaithfulness and my faithfulness. You play it out, Hosea. Okay. So he marries Gomer. And before too long, short story is that she runs off, flirting with other men, laying with other men, living with other men. Not too long after that, as you can imagine, she's destitute. She's poor. She's got not enough food, not enough clothes. And uh, amazingly, Hosea keeps feeding her, keeps clothing her, even from afar, even after being stiff-armed, rejected. Hosea keeps loving her, providing for her. Crazy, isn't it? He's crazy. Eventually, uh, she falls probably into slavery because of debt. She's rock bottom. And uh, she's sold now on the auction block. Remember, we're talking in terms of redemption, commerce, 
the buying and selling of humanity. She finds herself for sale. And Hosea goes to the auction of his wife. Not the wife who's loved him faithfully. The wife who's... uh, done just about the worst she could do to the heart of her husband. Broken it more than once. Rejected him more than once. And um, he goes. He goes to the auction. And the auction starts... Who will give? Who will give for this woman? By the way, when uh, you were sold in those days, you were always sold, put on display, naked, for viewing, so that the buyers knew exactly what they wanted to bid on you. Because you were going to become their property. And if you got a big, you know, heavy guy who doesn't look like he's very healthy and energetic, He's not going to do much work for you. But if you have this beautiful woman and now she becomes your property and you can do with her as you please like any other part of your property, then they strip you naked before everyone so that they can see exactly what they're buying. Imagine the humiliation here, not just for Gomer, but now for Hosea. I'm thinking if I'm Hosea, I'm going to go to this auction And the guy next to me, isn't that your wife? Yeah. I mean, how does does he even show up to this thing? But he does. Yeah, that's my wife. Are you going to bid on her? I mean, just stop right there and think for a moment how ridiculous this is. That now he has to bid on his own wife. Think of the irony of the thing. Think of the ridiculousness of this whole scene, church. Fifteen pieces of silver. Who will give fifteen pieces of silver? Someone raises their hand. Fifteen pieces in a, in a bushel of barley. Who will give fifteen pieces in a bushel of barley? I see that. Hand. Finally, uh, Hosea wins the auction. Fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. One commentator says, to further humiliate Gomer and Hosea, she was bought cheap. An indication probably of how far she had gone. How low she had fallen. She didn't even commend more than fifteen pieces of silver and a bushel and a half of barley. He buys his wife cheap. At this point, he could have killed her at at any given time because she was property. And as you could imagine, the humiliation, that probably wouldn't have been a strange thing. But Hosea describes what he does like this instead. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have any man. And so too, so too will I be towards you. Is that what redemption is? That's what redemption is. It's the meaning of the word. It's the picture wrapped up in the the word. We are 
idolatrous and adulterous slaves. Sold by our sin into slavery. The world beckons us away from our husband, our God, our creator. With all kinds of gifts and offerings. Till we find ourselves as low as we can go, maybe. Naked and ashamed. Seemingly worthless. Until the, until the groom makes his way through the crowd at the auction. And as the auctioneer gets ready to slam the gavel on my life and your life, he cries out one more time. Who will give for this one? Who will give? And Jesus says, I, I'll give. <laughs> I'll give my life. How about that? And the father slams the gavel and he says, auction closed because no one can pay a higher price than the blood of my son. Verse 7, in him, the beloved, you have redemption. But don't miss the next phrase. What is the price of that redemption, church? What does it say? In his blood. Auction closed. And you might think that uh, if you were Hosea, if I was Hosea, you know, we're living in separate bedrooms. God, you wanted me to marry her? You wanted me to have kids with her? I did. Some interesting names of their kids, by the way. That's another story. Uh, you wanted me to chase her. You wanted me to redeem her. You wanted me to buy her back. You wanted me to take her home. But she's living on the other end of the house. I'll act, but I won't feel anything. Uh, there's a whole other message here that uh, I'm going to preach one day. Let me just give you a taste of it. We think, don't we, in our marriages, but also in our greater life, that whatever God calls us to is probably going to be the best thing and the easiest thing for us and the most pleasant thing. If you want to hold to that, you better not read Hosea. And when you get to heaven, just avoid him because you don't want to run into this guy. Sometimes God calls us to do what's not easy or pleasant. Sometimes God's plan is so much bigger than just what I think my life needs to pan out to be. Have you learned that yet? Maybe some of us haven't. That God has the right as the eternal father, planner of this whole thing to trump my plans. To say, you know what? Uh, Jose, I know that you were planning on marrying the pretty girl next door and her dad's wealthy and all that and you guys have been courting for a while, but listen, I need you to go marry the harlot instead. Well, uh, thanks for the opportunity to convey grace in front of the world, but, you know, in grace, I'll choose not to do that. Sorry. Jose doesn't do that. Uh, one, guy, one guy wrote it like this. For all those who want to continue to complain that God would never want us to do anything difficult in our marriage or in our life for that matter, like stay married, like forgive sins, like live to please our spouse, like love our wives, men, with all we have, like submit to our husbands without bitterness, ladies, like trust God to work it all out, look at Hosea. No, you can't make what you want to make out of your own life.
because we belong to God. And he didn't just, he didn't just say, okay, I'll do the thing. This is, what, this is what amazes me. I'll not just pay for her. I'll not just buy her back. I'll not just do the thing. But God also commands Hosea to love her. To do the heart part. And he does. He doesn't put her on the other end of the house. He takes her home. He clothes her. He redeems her. He commits to her. And he loves her. Um, you know, the story of Jesus in redemption is its a type ology of that of Hosea, but it, it's even better. Can I tell you why? Jesus didn't need to be convinced to come for you. Jesus didn't need to be talked into your redemption. It's nothing for Jesus to see us in our idolatrous and adulterous state and to love us as a bride. And can I tell you that his blood not only pays the debt of our sin, but it washes us white as snow so that we are presented back to the Father just like he's always planned, holy and blameless to the praise of the glory of his grace, a grace which was freely bestowed as a gift to you and I in the beloved of the Father, namely Jesus. That's the work of Christ in time and space comes to where we are, humiliates himself, humbles himself, pays the highest price. Unlike Gomer, our freedom was not cheap. And then he clothes us in the righteousness of his own garments so that we might be found in him, holy and blameless. That is the good news. And it has been the eternal plan of God forever and ever. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for every spiritual blessing that you have granted us in the heavenly places. And we recognize that they are all in Christ, that it has been done in him, that you chose us in him. That we were adopted as sons through him, predestined in him. It's all been by your kind intention. Thank you for freely, not because I've earned it, not because I deserve it, but freely bestowing grace upon us. But thank you that, uh, that Christ, that Christ walked in this world to give his blood that he put flesh very literally on your plan 
so that the world might see that you are a gracious God. You are a loving Father. And you have made a way for your children to be redeemed. So that the eternal plan of adoption can be legal and binding and never questioned. Thank you, Jesus, for making us sons and daughters because you made us your bride. We claim forgiveness over our idolatrous and adulterous ways. And we turn and we run back to you in our hearts and in our lives because you not only first loved us, but you loved us well. And so our only response can be that we uh, are amazed at your grace. We're touched to our core and we are changed. We're made holy, blameless. Lord, we love you. Church, in uh, these opening chapters, there are no commands. I don't know if you heard me say that. There are no commands in anything we've read. None. Just truth. Just truth. Just love. The love of the Father and of the Son, and next time we'll see in the Holy Spirit. Just love. <laughs> you leave here today free. You leave here today free. Truth so that you could absorb, enjoy, and perhaps adjust your course wherever your course needs adjusting. Turn your heart back to the beloved wherever it needs turning back. Why don't you stand? We're going to sing one more song before I close this in prayer.